Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 51. And welcome to a new normal. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. And if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. If I get corona, I get corona. At the end of the day, I'm not going to let it stop me from partying. You know, I've been waiting. We've been waiting for Miami spring break for a while. About two months we've had this trip planned. Two, three months. So we're just out here having a good time. Whatever happens, happens. Like, it's really messing up with my spring break. What is there to do here other than go to the bars or the beach and they're closing all of it? It's really messing up. I think they're blowing it way out of proportion. I think it's doing way too much. Doing us bad. We need a refund. This virus ain't that serious. It's serious. It's more serious things out there like hunger and poverty, and we need to address that. Yeah, I mean, we planned this a long time ago, and it was kind of up in the air if we still go, but like we're here. I just turned 21 this year, so I'm here to party, so it's kind of disappointing, but we're just making the most of it. We met these other people in our little Airbnb spot, so we're just hanging out with them and trying to get drunk before everything closes. Ha ha. Well, everything is closing. America, as we know it, is about to close. And that audio of spring breakers partying in the face of a pandemic, that is plenty of reason to be angry. And they are not angry because they are not paying attention. But you are. And attention must be paid now more than ever. Because there is, unfortunately, still no cure for the coronavirus. But even more problematic, There is still no cure for stupid. And some foolish spring breakers partying are just a small cluster of stupid compared to the epidemic of stupid we're seeing in other places, most importantly, in the White House. Mr. President, there's there's reporting that the federal government has a a plan that shows that this coronavirus outbreak might last as much as long as 18 months. Are you seeing those numbers? No, we're not seeing that at all. And then my second question is, there are some, at least one White House official, who used the term Kung Flu, referring to the fact that this virus started in China. Is that acceptable? Is it wrong? Are you worried that that having this virus be, uh, be talked about as as a Chinese virus, then that might I help. wonder who said that. that. You know who said that? that? I'm not sure the person's name, but would you condemn you the fact say that the, the term Kung again. Flu, the, a person at the White House used the term just the Kung term. Flu. My question is, do Kung you think flu. that's wrong? Kung Flu. And do you think using the term Chinese virus, that puts Asian Americans at risk, that people no, might target not at them? All. No, not at all. I think they probably would agree with it 100%. It comes from China. There's nothing not to agree. Okay, how about last question? They don't agree with it 100%. It doesn't come from China. It's coming from everywhere now. Just like the stupidity, and increasingly, the hate. An Asian-American friend of mine was attacked in New York today. She was dragged to the ground, shoved against a building, and assaulted. This is on Trump. He's 100% putting our fellow Americans at risk. He's doing what our enemies want. It must stop. Because our enemies are celebrating. And in the face of coronavirus, we must be united. More than any other time in recent memory. More than any other time in our lifetime. Maybe more than any other time in history. We must be united. For the first time, at least in my life, the entire world has a rapidly moving global enemy to fight that is taking lives daily. Now, of course, climate change is also a threat that faces us all, but it never truly got the entire world's attention 
Corona does. And we're all in it together. And that's what this show has always been about. Unity. That's what we need in the face of this common enemy. Unity. We also need the four eyes that have been the core of this show from the beginning. Integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. More than ever before. And no matter what happens in America in the next few weeks or months, I'm going to do my best with our small, highly motivated team of Righteous Media to keep bringing you this pod and anything else that we can create that can bring the four eyes. We'll do our part to answer the call and make a difference and equip you to do the same. And like when I was in the Army, we'll adapt, improvise, and overcome. No matter what happens, we'll keep fighting, innovating, and creating. This show might have to change at times, but we're going to keep the content coming. We will continue to bring light, not heat, because we're all riders on the storm, just like we talked about in the last episode. Maybe it's time to let the old ways die Maybe it's time to let the old ways die It takes a lot to change, man Hell, it takes a lot to try Maybe it's time to let the old ways die And maybe it is time for the old ways to die They might have to die whether we like it or not And I strongly believe what Navy SEAL Commander Chris Fussell taught us all in the last episode, calm is contagious. And I want this pod to be a source of calm. The four eyes will bring that calm, along with news you can use, resources you can share, and a bit of levity and inspiration to get you through it. There will be hard days, but we will get through it together. Tough things will come at us that we never could have expected. And like in combat, We will take losses, some that could be very, very hard. But we will remain resilient. We will overcome, and we will find the light. Every single day, no matter what happens, you've got to look for the light. Because yesterday, we found out that thousands more of our fellow Americans were diagnosed with COVID-19. But yesterday, my one-year-old son also took his first step. And for him... And all the other kids out there, and for all our grandmas and grandpas out there, and our mothers and fathers out there, and neighbors and friends out there, we must stay strong, stay together, stay vigilant, and stay frosty. I've been looking for a goodbye or farewell that's suitable for these tough times we now all face. So what do you say? Have a nice day? Take care? Be healthy? Aloha? Peace? Well, Given that calm is contagious, the best I've come up with so far is stay frosty. You remember from Corporal Hicks and Alien? Hey, listen. We're all strung out shape. But stay frosty. Or from Generation Kill, the HBO miniseries about recon marines in Iraq, stay frosty. According to the Urban Dictionary, stay frosty means a valediction, which has come to mean be cool but which more properly understood is an admonishment to stay alert and on one's toes. It also means stay cool. Try to keep your calm. Don't lose your head. So until I find something better, that's what I'm rolling with. Stay frosty. 
And in this episode, we are staying frosty and doubling down on the biggest story in the world, the coronavirus pandemic. From our unique, independent vantage point, and from our strength in national defense, the military, first responders, and veterans. So how is the military tackling COVID-19? How is the military caring for our troops? How can they care for us? As the National Guard and Pentagon prepare to deploy here at home, our important and inspiring guest is one of the finest leaders I know, and he's going to break it down. Colonel Miles B. Caggins III is the Director of Public Affairs and the spokesperson for the Combined Joint Task Force for Operation Inherent Resolve, led by the U.S. Army's Three Corps. He's based in Baghdad, and he leads the military public communication for the entire 77 nation and five international organization global coalition to defeat Daesh or ISIS in Iraq and Syria. He's the guy. He's the top spokesperson for all of it. And Colonel Kaggins has 23 years of military experience at the tactical, operational, and strategic levels. From military posts, combat zones, the Pentagon, and the White House, Miles has led communication strategy for some of the most challenging issues of the past decade. He's led on Americans' rebalance to Asia and policy toward North Korea and China. He's led on the mission to defeat ISIS. He's led on Guantanamo, military human capital and recruiting, and nuclear security. For all of the most immediate threats of the last decade, Colonel Kaggins has been out in front. He's a leader deep in the fight, and he will be indefinitely. He represents the best of what our country is all about. He's a helper, a leader who, like all our guests on this pod, has shaped what America was, what it is, and what it will be. And he'll give you valuable insight into how the military and the country is and is going to respond to the coronavirus. And to all of you on social media who participated in our weekly Guess the Guest contest, I will have a righteous Made in the USA Angry Americans gift for your entire homeschool classroom. Now, it's probably only two or three people, but if you guessed it right and you guessed Colonel Kaggins, you will get an Angry Americans gift for your entire homeschool classroom. How about that? We recorded it virtually, we can't do in-persons for a while, from the forward edge of the critical fight for America in the Middle East, that's where Miles is stationed overseas right now, and the other front line, my home studio, also known as my wife's closet here in New York City. But like the last episode with Chris Fussell, the Navy SEAL commander, we're going to go deep into how to be a more effective leader in the face of coronavirus, how to face fear, how to keep hope. This episode is going to bring you information you can use to keep yourself, your loved ones, your neighbors, and your country safer. And yes, even now, I'm going to bring you a laugh or two and keep the car question and other favorites because Corona might close our schools and shut down the NBA, but it ain't taking our joy and it ain't taking our spirit and it ain't stopping our will. That's why I'll have an important action for you to take later in this episode to help you respond to the coronavirus. And I've got some very special thank yous and a powerful new sponsor and partner for this show, a group that's adding reinforcements to our community at a perfect time. More on all that coming up. But before that, as always, there are quickly some issues that have me angry, have others angry, and should have everyone angry. And that starts with the biggest story in the world, our common enemy, the coronavirus. So we have a new normal. Pandemics change everything. And our future is different now. And the best summary I saw was from Elon Goldenberg. 
He's a Middle East security director at CNAS, the Center for New American Security. It's a D.C. think tank. He focuses on Iran, Israel-Palestine, broader regional issues, U.S. foreign policy. He was a Warren supporter, and he's a live kidney donor. But I saw this fantastic thread from him that I thought really shaped up how our future is different. It was a series of tweets that I'm going to read that I think shape up how everything is different now. This is from Elon Goldenberg. First work, school day at home with the whole family, and I'm thinking that, like 9-11, COVID-19 is about to usher in a new era of U.S. foreign policy. The obsession with terrorism will end. What replaces it is critical to get right. Having Trump define that would be a catastrophe. For years, many policy experts have been saying that terrorism is a distraction. The real challenges of the 21st century are global warming, China, pandemics, new technologies, etc. Now, while that was nice in theory, the American public's outlook and the press's coverage was still dominated by the national trauma of 9-11. And so the wars in the Middle East disproportionately dominated our discourse and our politics. Obama, for example, talked about getting out of the Middle East and focusing globally. Yet in his last two years, he and his team spent more time on countering ISIS than any other foreign policy issue. Why? Because the American public and press zeroed in on it, and he had to respond. Well, those days are over. We're all going to be personally affected by this crisis. When it's done, the public will have a new priority set as a result of this global trauma. This will be a historic moment to reshape U.S. foreign policy similar in scope to 9-11 or post-World Wars. Just look at the news this week. We seem to be recklessly escalating with Iran and Iraq, and it's not even penetrating at all. Two months ago, this would have been front-page news. There will be a coronavirus commission and a massive reorganization of our government to deal with this and similar challenges. And our societal priorities will shift. I studied Arabic before 9-11 as an undergrad and had three students in my class. I went to grad school after 9-11 and all my Middle East classes were oversubscribed. Expect a massive surge in public health students, programs, and money. Also expect a fundamental reshaping of the international agenda in terms of what leaders around the world prioritize, the institutions they invest in, and what dominates meetings like G7 or NATO. Goldenberg continued. Terrorism was a secondary issue before 9-11 being done by some unknown experts in government. After 9-11, they became household names. Expect the same for global health. It's already happening. This will also shape a whole new generation of foreign policy thinkers, much like my cohort was shaped by 9-11 and Iraq, and the cohort before me was shaped by the end of the Cold War. The upcoming cohort will be shaped by COVID-19. The question is, Will we get this massive moment right? For a few years, all assumptions will be called into question. The public will be flexible. There will be opportunities for big, strategic, historic shifts. But this moment will not last long, a few years max. And then the public and politicians will settle on this new reality. That's why it will be so critical to get things right. We've had a mixed record in the past with huge consequences. After World War I, we got it horribly wrong. After World War II, we got it right and built the institutions and alliances and developed the strategy of containment, which defined the Cold War era. We screwed up the response to 9-11. The war on terrorism and the invasion of Iraq have wasted massive resources and were a huge strategic mistake. The key decisions were made in the first few years, after which conventional wisdom in government and public opinion hardened. Obama recognized this. 
but it was too late. He intellectually understood the approach didn't make sense, but it was impossible to shift the frame and mentality of the public, many of his advisors, and U.S. government institutions. That's why the early years after a massive crisis are so critical. This is the narrow window to make fundamental change. I don't know what our foreign policy should look like after this is done, but I do know if Donald Trump wins re-election and defines this moment, the results will be catastrophic. We will turn inward. We will use this moment to break alliances, shatter the world order, and respond to the transnational challenges by trying to build a figurative wall. This moment could be the opportunity to imprint America first on U.S. foreign policy for years to come. Just look at his response thus far. Travel bans that make little sense. Trying to buy out a German company making vaccines. Failure to view this as a transnational human problem instead of an American problem. We cannot let that happen. We must defeat him in November and instead use this moment to bring the world together. Reimagine our foreign policy strategy, alliances, and global institutions for this new era. We must use it to act as the global leader capable of bringing the world together to deal with the challenges of the 21st century, such as pandemic diseases and global warming. We are at the beginning of a huge moment, not just in our response, but in what comes afterward. We need to get it right. That's the end. He's right. And you know what? More than ever, stakes is high. But despite the high stakes, some folks still don't get it. Eight senators actually voted against the coronavirus relief package in the Senate this week. It was a $100 billion coronavirus aid package, which included provisions for emergency paid leave for workers and free coronavirus testing. But eight senators voted against it. Yes, really. And here they are. Marsha Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee. Jim Inhofe, Republican of Oklahoma. James Lankford, Republican of Oklahoma. What the hell's going on with Oklahoma, people? Mike Lee, Republican from Utah. There's a familiar face. Rand Paul, Republican from Kentucky. Again, we'll come back to him in a second. Ben Sass, Republican from Nebraska. Tim Scott, Republican from South Carolina. And Ron Johnson, Republican from Wisconsin. Those are the eight senators who voted against the coronavirus aid package. They voted against getting you emergency help. They voted against the interests of the American people. Make them famous. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. And pay attention to those names, especially Rand Paul. Per usual, he voted no. This is the same dude who voted to block the bill to extend benefits to 9-11 first responder heroes back last summer. Remember that? The same first responder heroes who are now at higher risk from coronavirus because of their respiratory issues. That means heroes like Rob Sarah, who joined us on episode two and episode 11. You've heard about him a lot if you're a regular listener. We've used the hashtag, my friends are dying. Well, now we've got a new hashtag, impeach Rand Paul. So I found an appropriate theme song for Rand Paul, and I know Rob Sarah will like it. Cover the kids' ears or don't. I'm not going to tell you how to parent in a pandemic. But this is now officially the Rand Paul song. I use public toilets and I piss on the 
seat I walk around in the summertime saying how about this heat I'm an echo So Rand Paul's not helping. Those eight senators are not helping. But many folks are, and many folks can. And in particular, the VA can help. And I've been telling you to watch this space, but the Department of Veterans Affairs can be a tremendous source of resources in this critical time. And I want to explain a bit about why. They serve over 9 million people across the country. They have hundreds of thousands of employees, and they are the nation's designated backstop in the event of a public health emergency like this one. And there was a great thread from Ben Kessling, a Wall Street Journal reporter and Marine, excellent leader, guy who's covered war zones and the VA, and I hope will join us in the future on this show. But he broke it down. He said, a quick thread for anyone wondering if the U.S. has a no-kidding last resort medical safety net if the country is struck by something like a pandemic. It does, and you've probably never heard about it. Most people know that Department of Veterans Affairs has a bunch of hospitals across the country set up to treat veterans. But few people know that the extensive VA healthcare system is set up to be mobilized in case of a national medical emergency. Back in 1982, the VA assumed the responsibility to be, quote, back up to the Department of Defense Medical Care System and to the Public Health Service and the National Disaster Medical System in times of natural and technological disasters. Former health care chief Ken Kaiser said about the VA, for all intents and purposes, the VA is the federal government's only direct response capability. The U.S. Public Health Service no longer has any resources with which to respond to a disaster or national emergency. In case you're wondering how many hospital beds the VA has available for use in case of a national emergency, well, that's not so easy to explain, and let me tell you why. The VA's last publicly available pandemic document is from 2006. The document talks about what the VA can do in the event of a pandemic flu. Kessling continued, The VA's told me that it has updated that 2006 pandemic plan to cover flu, as well as H1N1, SARS, and Ebola and that it's currently being updated to cover COVID-19. The VA also told them that documents were available for internal use and not for public consumption. For anyone who wants to dive into the most publicly available plan for the VA about how it, the government agency of last resort, is dealing with a pandemic, it's available online. But ultimately, the head of the Veterans Health Administration is in charge of a pandemic response. And in case you're wondering about top VA public officials, the Deputy Patient Care Services Officer for Public Health is vacant. Yes, the job is vacant. Kessling continued, okay, back to the discussion of how many beds the VA has available in case of a national emergency. Now, back in 2006, the VA had about 20,000 beds available at a 67% occupation rate, with more in long-term facilities and things like that. So it could be over 20,000 or more. The most up-to-date tally of how many beds the VA has and where they are can't be accessed publicly. But in case Congress is interested, the official use data set is posted online, thanks to Kessling. Now, Kessling continues, Dear Raider, let's talk about you. The VA secretary is, quote, authorized to provide hospital care and medical services to non-VA beneficiaries responding to, involved in, and otherwise affected by national disaster or emergency according to 38 U.S.C. 1785. Ever wonder why the VA mobilizes for hurricanes, earthquakes, and disasters? It's not just to treat veterans. 
is because the VA has the power, authority, and national reach to come to the aid of, quote, those who have borne the battle, but also for all citizens if needed. A quick side note, this public health backstop is one of the four core VA missions. The first is to care for eligible veterans, but it's also mandated to provide research as well as doctor training. So in short, the VA is a last resort public health resource. There's no publicly available docs to show updated pandemic plans. The last available is from 2006. And Congress can ask the department about its role in coronavirus contingencies. That's all good stuff from Ben Kessling at the Wall Street Journal, a guy you should follow and a guy I hope will join us on the show in the future. But he paints the picture. He sets it up and explains to you why the VA can be so critical right now. Kessling, he's a helper and the VA can be a helper. But we got to be one nation under a groove. Ready or not, yeah, we come VA has to be honest about what they need. They have a chronic staffing shortage across the entire agency that could put lives in jeopardy right now. Data released in August revealed that 49,000 vacant positions exist across the department. That's a department that employs more than 390,000 people. So almost 50,000 spots are vacant. Now, while the agency's budget has increased year over year, tens of thousands of jobs are still unfilled. That's a problem. But even without them filled, VA can help. But they got to be asked and they got to be honest. And now they're asking Congress for $16 billion in the emergency coronavirus bill. But just a couple weeks ago, VA Secretary Wilkie and top VA leaders repeatedly told lawmakers overconfidently that they didn't need any additional resources. They were cool. They were good to go. But that arrogance has shifted. And that arrogance could cost lives and endanger not just veterans, not just the public, but also the brave frontline VA staff that's right now fighting the virus. I wish I was wrong, but I told you all to watch this space and watch it in the days, months, and years to come. Because they're not doing much so far, even internally. The VA has administered only 322 tests 322 tests in an agency that serves 9 million veterans, half of which are over 65. This is still not getting enough attention. More NBA players have been tested than veterans at the VA. That's a problem. They're now reporting 44 positive cases across the healthcare system. One veteran has died, but they don't even know how many they have because they've only tested 322 people. The president, VA Secretary Wilkie, and Congress must be pressed on this. The public needs daily briefings from the VA, and they haven't gotten one yet. The VA has been like a black hole of information, and briefing Congress behind closed doors is not enough. We need to be asking, where is the VA and where is VA Secretary Wilkie? I started a hashtag, where is Wilkie? Watch this space, because the VA can help, and the Department of Defense can help too, but they only just got asked. Last week, we should have been hearing from the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, but instead, we were hearing from the CEO of CVS and Walmart. President Mayhem didn't seem to understand that the private sector alone wasn't going to have the capacity, dexterity, or mission focus to respond to this problem. We needed to bring in the military. We needed to bring in the VA, and he waited too long. And because he's taken so long to activate them, they ain't coming soon. They are coming but they're not going to be here quickly. 
And here's Secretary of Defense Mark Esper on CNN with Jake Tapper. How soon do you think these hospital ships will be deployed to New York and to the West Coast? They're both in a different status at the president's direction. We have alerted them. Uh, the Comfort, which is on the East Coast, uh, should be ready in a couple weeks plus. Uh, the Mercy, which is on the w- West Coast, uh, should be ready in a week and a half, two weeks. So uh, uh, definitely before the end of uh, this month, the Mercy will deploy. So uh, we're moving everything we can to do that. A, a challenge is making sure that they're properly staffed. Uh, that means in both cases, each ship is over 1,000 medical pr- professionals. So we need to get them alerted to on the ships and then start steaming to the respective locations. A couple weeks? A couple weeks to send two ships to New York City? They sent my ass and a few hundred thousand other people to invade the wrong country all the way in the Middle East in just a few weeks back in 2003. They can definitely move faster than that to get some ships to New York City. But these ships are a sample of what the Department of Defense can do. But they also could have been doing it weeks or months ago. So yeah, stakes is high. And VA can help. And DOD can help. If called on. And if properly led. But have no doubt, stakes is high. especially for those of us in new york and it's getting a bit stressful over here just like after 9-11 rumors and bad leadership are rampant in my dear city in 2001 all our cell phones went down and people told us the white house had been hit by a plane and we had george bush as president today We've got Russian trolls on Twitter spreading all kinds of crap and Bill de Blasio, the worst mayor in America, who told everyone he might lock the whole city down, only to be corrected by New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. There is not going to be any quarantine. No one is going to lock you in your home. No one is going to tell you you can't leave the city. That's not going to happen. We do need to increase our hospital capacity. We have to get aggressive about it. This federal partnership is very important. But that's that's what this is. And the hysteria is not factually based. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Because I don't know how many episodes of Tumble Leaf I can watch. And although the new Westworld season is amazing, I might want to be like Bernard at some point and get the hell out. But for now, here in New York City, we're hanging in. We're sticking together. And it ain't exactly John Carpenter's 1997 version of New York just yet. New York, 1997. The entire city is a walled maximum security prison. The bridges are mined. The rivers are patrolled. And the United States police force has everything under control. They think. I'm going in. John Carpenter's Escape from New York. The high adventure of the future. One man must go in where no man has ever gotten out. And if he comes back alone... His nightmare has just begun. Who are you? John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Heard you were dead. (laughs) 
John Carpenter's Escape from New York, the greatest escape of them all, is about to blow the future apart. There are some folks that are escaping New York, no doubt. Lots of folks are heading out to the country or to their Hamptons house, but most of us are still here, and we're holding it down, just like we did after 9-11, just like we did after Hurricane Sandy, and just like we'll do again now, because that's what New Yorkers do. That's what Americans do, but especially New Yorkers. We got pizza to eat. We got F-bombs to drop. We got Seinfeld scenes to live in. We got the Yankees to look forward to. We got the end of Bill de Blasio as mayor to look forward to. Maybe we got Andrew Yang for mayor to look forward to. And eventually, we've got a primary for president in New York to look forward to. Because although corona is the everything right now, our forever wars don't stop for coronavirus. And at least for now, the race for president isn't stopping either. And Joe Biden's good run isn't stopping. It continues to roll and gain steam. And in a very strange debate, when everyone was watching the pandemic, he had his best debate yet. Sanders looked really flustered, and it was the worst version of him on display. And Biden was at his best, which is still not that great, but looks very strong in contrast to Sanders right now. Now, in this debate, it would have been great if they came together and showed a tremendous moment of unity. It would have been great to hear about how they're going to create a global coalition of world leaders to fight the coronavirus, to tell everybody that America is not alone in this fight. We used to unite and lead the world. I hope they still think that's possible. But first, they got to show they're even thinking about it. And they didn't really do that. They also didn't focus on national defense at all. No focus on war, the military, veterans, Iran, ISIS, Iraq, Afghanistan, North Korea, Russians attacking our elections, nukes, and much more. So despite all the increased global instability, despite a cyber attack on the Health and Human Services Department in the middle of a pandemic, and despite four U.S. troops being killed in Iraq, there was no discussion of national security or our forever war. So our troops lost again. But Biden won the debate, and he won the headlines with this headline snatcher in particular. If I'm elected president, my, my cabinet, my administration will look like the country. And I commit that I will in fact appoint a, I'll pick a woman to be vice president. There are a number of women who are qualified to be president tomorrow. I would pick a woman to be my vice president. It was a very smart political move by Biden, a headline grabber. It added excitement. And it's the kind of thing Sanders needed much more right now than Biden did. Sanders is going to be pissed he didn't do it first. But the debate was over in a flash. New York City and L.A. closed their schools, and we were back into a focus on the pandemic. And you've probably been focused on the pandemic since. And you probably didn't even know there were some primaries. But there was another Super Tuesday, Super Tuesday 3, or Terrific Tuesday for Biden. The former VP won big in Florida, Illinois, and Arizona. He went 3 for 3. In Florida, he got a whopping 62%. In Illinois, 60%. In Arizona, 44% to Sanders, 32%. But big margins for the most part. And Biden now has a nearly insurmountable delegate lead. And he's looking, sounding, and feeling presidential. You know, it's a moments like these we realize we need to put politics aside and work together as Americans. The coronavirus doesn't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. It will not discriminate based on national origin, race, gender, or your zip code. It will touch people in positions of power, as well as the most vulnerable people in our society. We're all in this together. That's what a president is supposed to sound like. 
And that's what it sounds like when you can get some really talented speechwriters. All the talent is coalescing around Biden now. And the staff talent gap between Biden and Trump is going to be enormous. But in addition to Terrific Tuesday for Biden, there was supposed to be an Ohio primary. But that was called off in the last minute due to the health emergency posed by the coronavirus, a smart move by Ohio. But now Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, and Maryland have also postponed the presidential primary elections. And New York is likely to do the same. And Alabama postponed a widely watched Republican runoff for a U.S. Senate seat. Now, speaking of Republicans and way below the radar, one of the last men and women standing in the race for president is out. Bill Weld is out. I bet you didn't even see it. The former Massachusetts governor ended his Republican presidential campaign, conceding that President Donald Trump has officially won enough delegates to win the 2020 Republican nomination. Weld has been a fierce critic of Trump, and in last April, he called for the president to resign. But Trump ain't resigning, and Weld is out. And now, without a doubt, Trump will be the Republican nominee. We knew Trump was a lock as the nominee. And now Biden looks like the lock as the nominee, but there are still primaries to be had. But it could be a while before we have another one. And Sanders is not dropping out just yet. So at least for a little bit longer, the Dems will continue to eat their own. Even in the coronavirus, even though the nomination is locked up, the Democrats are still continuing to eat their own. And to all the Bernie Sanders holdouts, good luck pitching America now on a socialist with no military experience to lead organizations like the Department of Defense and the Army Corps of Engineers in response to the coronavirus. You want to see what that looks like? Go find Mayor Bill de Blasio. He'll be at the gym strolling in tomorrow at about 1130 or embarrassing himself on Twitter. The nomination fight for the Democrats is over, but the fighting might not be. Sanders can hold out. He can make it hard. He can encourage folks to keep holding out and to eat their own. Or he can join the team and focus on fighting the coronavirus and focus on fighting Trump. But until then, the fight for the nomination goes on. And on this pod, we always talk about the helpers. I tell you to look out for the helpers. They're out there. Winter, spring, summer, or fall. All you've got to do is call. And I'll be there, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you've got a friend. No matter what's happening in America, no matter what's happening in the world, the helpers are out there. People of all kinds and all across the country are stepping up to do good and help each other out. Lots of celebrities are doing concerts. They're donating money and doing what they can to help. Like this guy. For every winning team, a key to success is learn the playbook. That's true in football, and it's also true as we take on the coronavirus. The spread of the coronavirus is a serious matter, but there's a game plan for keeping residents as safe as possible. Everyone has a role to play as we face this challenge together. Cover your cough with your elbow like this. Wash your hands thoroughly, a full 20 seconds. If you're sick, stay home. If you think you should be tested, phone your health provider first. Avoid close contact with anyone who's sick. Protect your at-risk family members, including the elderly. If you're not at risk, take care as you go about your daily business. 
Get the facts now from coronavirus.gov and your state health department. We're all in this together. Let's team up to protect our health. That's Ed Ergeron, head coach of the national champion LSU Tigers football team, rallying America to kick coronavirus's ass. You got to love that guy. We're going to need him and all the big guns in America to be helpers now more than ever. And more helpers are on the way. And that includes our guest in this episode. It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine. Something pepper and heavy D up in the limousine. Hanging pictures on Colonel Miles Caggins is a guy I've known for a long time. He's a guy who I want my kids to look up to. No matter what comes at him and at America, he's staying frosty. A few months ago, he was the lead spokesperson for the U.S. forces in the Middle East as rockets rained down on our troops in Iraq. We were on the brink of war with Iran. Remember that? He was communicating for America with dignity, precision, class, and strength, like he always does, and like I wish our president would. Based now in Baghdad, Iraq, Miles leads the military public communication for the 77-nation and five-international organization Global Coalition to Defeat Daesh ISIS in Iraq and Syria. He has 23 years of military experience at multiple levels. This is his third combat tour in Iraq. From April 2003 to 2004, when I was there, Colonel Kagans commanded a company in the 2nd Brigade, 4th ID, operating in Diyala province. He returned to Iraq in 2009 and served as spokesperson for the 4th Brigade 1st Armored Division. In his current role, a critical one, he partners with the Iraqi Security Forces and the Syrian Democratic Forces. Miles was also a National Security Fellow at Harvard's prestigious Kennedy School of Government. He earned a master's degree in public relations from Georgetown and has a bachelor's in history from Hampton University in Virginia. He's a member of the National Press Club and a lifelong member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He's also single, so keep that in mind if you know anybody who might be a good match for him when he gets back home. Because he's the kind of leader you hope will marry a loved one in your family. The kind of leader you hope will be on the front lines for America when the balloon goes up. The kind of leader you hope the president is listening to. The kind of leader you hope will be president one day. And he could be. Because Miles Caggins is the real deal. He also always gives back. He mentors kids. And in our conversation, he'll even make an offer to all of you in this time of stress. He keeps it real. And he mentions in our conversation the notorious B.I.G., Last week was the anniversary of the death of the Notorious B.I.G. The Notorious B.I.G., or Biggie, was famous for his lyrics. Lyrics that told the story of pain, told the story of struggle, but also told the story of dreaming of a brighter day. We'll need the words of the poets in the days ahead. And we'll need the hope of a brighter day. We'll need dreams. We'll need each other. And we'll need leaders, like Colonel Miles Caggins. We all know it now. We're in for some tough days of struggle ahead. As we say in the Army, we all bond in the suck. And we will. We will endure. We will rally. We will have good days. And we will have bad days. But one day, we'll all be back together. In ballparks and on beaches and at parades. And one day, we might have our VJ Day or VC Day. Victory over Japan Day also known as VJ Day, is the day the Japanese surrendered in World War II, ending the war. It's recognized now on August 15th. That was the day of Japan's announcement of the surrender. After years of fighting, years of sacrifice, and years of suck, 
There was a celebration of the end. There was an end. There was a VJ day. There was a time when the nation and the world came together to celebrate peace and celebrate the end of the war. We will have that day. We will unite as a nation. We will unite as a planet. We will find a vaccine. We will have our VC day, our victory over coronavirus day. But until then, we will face our fears. We will mourn our losses and we will rally our nation and our world and we will celebrate life. But until then, we're in the suck and we all bond in the suck. And this episode, we will bond in the suck and we will find ways to move forward together. It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine. Something pepper and heavy D up in the limousine. And we'll do it with the four eyes. It's a surgical mask of integrity. It's a Dr. Fauci briefing of information. It's some hand sanitizer of impact and a vaccine of inspiration. Welcome to the suck. Welcome to our new normal. Welcome to a time that will, until further notice, truly be one team and one fight. Welcome to the pandemic dispatches. Welcome to Angry Americans. Episode 51. I'm blowing up like you thought I would. Call a crib, same number, same hood. It's all good. And if you don't know, Angry Americans around the country and around the world, welcome to a very special conversation for a very special time. We are very, very humbled and grateful to be joined from Baghdad, Iraq, by the great and powerful Colonel Miles B. Kaggins III. How are you, my friend? Paul, it's great to be on the air with Angry Americans. Uh, it's it's a it's an interesting time to be in Baghdad, Iraq, uh, and. Uh, Beyond coronavirus, I don't recommend travel here. Follow the State Department guidelines. Things are certainly um, heating up in our tensions. But, you know, we're focused on ensuring that our soldiers are safe out here, helping our Iraqi security force partners. And I'm happy to to talk to you and your listeners and update you on what's happening in the Middle East. So we're we're old friends, man. We, we go way back. Did we meet the first time? At the Council on Foreign Relations, or where did we meet the very first time? Do you know? I'm trying to remember. It, we could have met in person for the first time at the Council on Foreign Relations, but I think prior to that, you had already started the uh, IAVA organization there. And being an Iraq War veteran, this your your organization that you founded, Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, appealed to me as a as a veteran of these modern conflicts that we've had in Afghanistan and Iraq for the past what 18 years now yeah. uh and then later on met you at the cfr and glad to have maintained contact with you and and here we come full circle to where i'm back where you served in 2003 uh in iraq still out here still going forward in the united states army and tons of overlap to dig into but first before we get into that let's set the picture i'm in new york city um we are you know pretty much on lockdown families are locked down we're all watching the news as this situation develops. I'm in my wife's closet with shoes behind me. It's a closet of about like four square feet, very small New York City closet. And you are in Baghdad. Can you tell people where you are and set the state? You were, you were kind of giving me a little tour of where you are right now. Tell me, tell folks where you are right now. 
as well. certainly I'm I'm in my office in Iraq at a base called Union Three. It's in the international zone, the green zone. It's directly across the street from the United States Embassy here in Baghdad. Uh, on the base that that where I'm sitting now, it's an Iraqi base. There's an Iraqi headquarters right across the street. You could roll a bowling ball and hit the door uh, with an Iraqi three-star who commands their Joint Operations Command Iraq. I'm here at the coalition's military headquarters. The, the headquarters I serve in is responsible for coordinating the efforts to defeat ISIS remnants with our Iraqi partners, as well as Syrian Democratic Forces. And I uh, am honored to serve as the spokesman for this 82-member organization, including 77 nations and five international organizations. My office is in a, a building that was once in Iraqi Army headquarters, and I've had an opportunity to decorate my office a little bit. Behind me, I have my Hampton University banner that motivates and inspires me every day. Uh, a couple of little cousins on my mom's side of the family, the McRae family, ha drew a little picture of me, and they said, you're our hero, and and I think it looks a little bit like me. And I have a friend named Lyann Meyer from Montana who runs a support group for soldiers. And we've been pen pals ever since 2003 when uh, you and I served in Iraq the first time around. So I'm excited to talk to you for a number of reasons. But because before coronavirus hits, you are you know, one of the most important spokespeople for the entire Department of Defense, you know, for the coalition. You are a master of essentially crisis communications and leadership in times of chaos. Last episode, I talked to Chris Fussell, Navy SEAL commander, McChrystal Group president about how to lead in chaos. But you're a guy who has been leading in chaos for most of your career, but especially in this role right now. So I want to expand on, a many, on many elements of what you do and your leadership and what folks can learn from your experiences, but just on a very human level. For you, my, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to call you Colonel, even though you are well-deserving of that title now. You are a full bird Colonel now. You've been in the military for a couple decades or more. Um, what's it like over there for you? As a, as, a, as, a, as a person, as an American right now, watching coronavirus hit the country and around the world? Yeah, Paul, this is a great and timely question. Those of us in the military and our operations here in Iraq and Syria are also affected by the coronavirus. Let me paint a little bit of the picture for you. We have soldiers at maybe around 10 bases here in Iraq and uh, several others in, in Syria. Particularly on the Iraq side, our military coalition has really a two-pronged mission. One is to help the Iraqis catch bad guys outside of our bases. So the Iraqis hear that there's ISIS hiding out in the mountains or in the desert. They'll come to us. We'll share some intelligence and information. And on rare occasion, we'll accompany them to go on a raid to catch ISIS remnants. And we're talking uh, financiers, uh, outlaws, people who are smuggling lethal aid. We want to bust up their networks and ensure that they never resurge. More importantly, though, we train the Iraqis on several bases uh, across the country. Well, that training is currently paused. Just this week, as a result of the coronavirus, uh, we have paused our training operations for several weeks, and the Iraqis are paused too. So it looks like we may not get back to the training until sometime after Ramadan. That has an impact on, on our troops here. So we're looking at moving some troops around, getting them out of harm's way instead of having them sit around on camps that occasionally get rocketed by rogue militia groups. There's another part of this, though. Uh, beyond the mission that's impacted, it's the people. 
we have people here who are expected to go back to their home countries. We have more than 30 military countries represented. Uh, we have folks who are scheduled to go on leave, and those leave and vacations back home were time during spring break so they could spend time with family, go on vacation. None of that is happening as a result of the COVID-19 response. Uh, these are some of the, the tough pills to swallow and the hard decisions our commanders have to make to keep everyone safe. And no military is effective if everyone's sick. So we take health as, as clearly one of our number one priorities before people even come into most of our Western militaries and certainly throughout our, our terms of service. So to paint, so to paint the picture, you know, there's, there's a guy or a gal who's been there maybe six months or a year has been planning for a year to come home. Maybe was going to go to spring break in Disney world with their kids, or maybe somebody was going to get married. You know, they're looking forward to reconnecting with their families and, and those folks are just frozen, right? They're frozen in place. They don't know when they're going to move. They don't know when they're, it's the ultimate stop loss. Right. And at the same time, you all don't know how your families are doing back home. I remember being in Iraq when when uh, when a hurricane hit and folks, you know, couldn't go home and check on their houses, couldn't go home and check on uh, their property or their people. And that's 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 really incredibly stressful. But I think it's important for folks to to not be navel gazing and understand that our frontline fighters right now are, are essentially on lockdown, too. How do you how, the military is a group of people that get together? Right. We've been a couple months ago, back in January, right. the number one news in the world was rocket attacks. And you all were hunkered yeah. in place in groups avoiding rocket attacks, you know, without obviously this is going to be the theme throughout this interview, without disclosing anything that that, that is top secret or, or confidential or would in any way endanger our folks. You know, how do you do that? How, how do you go to dining halls? How do you, you know, do training? How do you do any, I, the, 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 the mission of the military is always to adapt, improvise and overcome, but can you paint that picture for us right now on a military base in Iraq? Yeah, sure. A couple of anecdotes. Today I went to cross the street to talk to Major General Tassin Ibrahim. General Tassin is the spokesman for the Joint Operations Command. He's an Iraqi general and I consider him a friend. I walked down into his basement office uh, and he had a, a, a surgical mask on and, and two blue latex gloves, and he was surprised. I caught him off guard. He took the gloves off immediately, and we shook hands. But people are taking some individual protection measures. For those of us in the coalition side, we've done something new and novel today, uh, protect, uh, practicing social distancing during video teleconferences. So... We have this new system where you can have several hundred video teleconferences up and in where we used to have gatherings of 30 people, 40 people in a room to have a meeting. Now we have people doing the meetings from their own office or in smaller groups. On a wider scale, though, there still is the military and we do assemble and we do eat and we do have to travel together. Uh, we're taking precautions um, that everybody else is taking. People are being reminded to have good hygiene, wash their hands keep their rooms clean, uh, practice social distancing, as well as getting rest and exercising, staying healthy, keeping your immune system up, being resilient so your body's ready to take on any, any illness. Uh, fortunately, we are, are in the band of people who are, are less susceptible to severe coronavirus, but we're thinking about everyone back home. And as you said, there are some people who are planning on going on vacations and, and getting back with their loved ones and what's really, really uh, hit home is our group of Italians. The Italians have the third largest contingent of troops here in Iraq. 
And we have several hundred Italians who were frozen in place. They couldn't get back to Italy and some who couldn't come out here as a result of what coronavirus is doing in Italy. And their focus is totally on their families, uh, particularly the older members of their families. And as soon as they can get out and get back to their home country, they're free to go. Uh, that's one of the one of the decisions that was made by the commander here as we've paused training on a case-by-case basis. We're getting people out of here, but there are a lot of different rules from airlines and, and uh, customs and immigration at various countries. We'll get through this together, but uh, our focus is on protecting our force now. Miles, you've been a spokesperson, you know, and you've been in front of the cameras you, on a global stage. You've been the guy when the rocket attacks were happening back in, in January and, and over the last couple of months and, you know, tensions with Iran were at their apex. You were one of the guys briefing essentially the world media on on what was happening uh, and, and what we were doing. Um, first off, can you explain for the average American civilian the capacity of the U.S. military right now to help? Folks are hearing about National Guard deployments to places like New Rochelle. You're hearing about medical units that may be deployed to places like New York or San Francisco. But you're an expert on the capacity of our military and on communicating that. So for the average American, how can the military help right now? I'll keep my comments tailored to what we have uh, seen here in in this region and what the military is doing. Our, Our Iraqi partners right now uh, in certain locations are enforcing curfews. Uh, in other locations, they're they're running checks where there are medical um, professionals with them doing roadside checks of people who are who are passing by, just spot checks on on um, the health and coronavirus symptoms, flu-like symptoms. Back in the states, one of the great things that our military has is the ability for logistics. I think as it as we think of this coronavirus in our response and any sort of military response that might be related to it, um, it's our ability to mobilize a healthy, ready group of, of workers who have committed to serving the United States to assist civilian authorities in whatever way that civilian authorities need to be aided. One of the things that we have is a significant logistics uh, infrastructure and equipment. We can fly personnel around, we can move around uh, medical professionals, we can move around personal protective equipment, supplies, medicines, and deliver them in a way that is very organized. But anytime we do this, we work with the civilian authorities. I know the leadership here in deployed environments, as well as in the United States through the most senior levels of the Defense Department are focused on this. And you can tell that they're focused on it with the number of communications uh, down and in through our formations. Their youngest private and airman knows what's going on as it pertains to the coronavirus protocols. And we're also doing a lot of communication up and out. So I anticipate that you'll continue to see updates from the Pentagon. And I defer to my Pentagon colleagues to explain the department's overall role. But America should feel confident that our service members, the young men and women who are wearing the uniform, wearing the jersey of our nation, will respond as they are asked to respond and can be trusted and dependable in delivering any mission that we require. 
Miles, is there any example from the deployed environment recently that you can share that speaks specifically to the medical capacity, whether it was a you know mass casualties or uh, you know treating refugees? There are a lot of examples I can think of where we where the military has the capacity to stand up a hospital, um, to do immunizations. I mean, the, the capacity to deliver babies and do things that that are necessary for a healthy society. But are there any examples from the deployed environment, either now or throughout your career, that you can reference to kind of put color around what that capacity could look like in action? Our military medical professionals are exceptional. Uh, I wish I didn't have these examples to share with you, but in recent weeks, yes, we've had a number of rocket attacks by uh, some vile militia groups that have wounded and killed some of our soldiers and airmen. Others have been saved by our commitment to preserving the force through battlefield healthcare, battlefield medicine. We had rockets land, and from the time of rockets landing, between then and the next 60 minutes, we had people flown on Black Hawk helicopters through the night to a hospital at the Baghdad uh, airport, a military hospital, where life-saving saving surgery was, was conducted. This is done under times of duress. When there's rocket attacks, you never know when the next one comes. But the pilots are mobilized. They get in their Black Hawks. They land. People on the ground do everything they can to render aid fly through the night in an atmosphere that could sometimes be dangerous, you land and strangers receive the patients and they're waiting. And most of the time they're waiting with nothing to do. But sometimes the alarms ring out and they have to answer the call and save a life. It's, it's really incredible the investment that we put into saving our personnel here. Mm. Sadly, we had a couple of Marine Raiders who were killed a couple of weeks ago in combat operations against ISIS. And it was really tough terrain, mountainous terrain, the Makmur Mountains in north central Iraq. And these guys were killed and in a place where they're pretty hard to recover their remains. But, you know, we leave nobody behind on the battlefield. So our special operators responded, trudged through the night, fought ISIS in close combat, in uh, close combat, I mean terrorists who had suicide vests strapped to them, explosive suicide vests, direct close-fire engagements where they're firing AK-47s from, from hidden positions inside caves and behind boulders. And our guys fought through that to, to get our Marines back so they could be uh, sent back with honor to the United States. And this just, I forever am impressed with the toughness and resolve of individual soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines who will come together as a group. And here at the coalition, you see this from multiple soldiers. We've had a time where five Italian commandos were wounded in an operation against ISIS, and our American medics saved them. The Italian general is forever thankful to the American soldiers, and so are those Italian soldiers and their families. And that's just what we do. It's who we are. And I know there's probably some young people listening, and if they want to be part of, you know, the best team in America, I say consider the military. Uh, it's a chance to serve our nation in ways that can go beyond any of our dreams. 
I never imagined when I was graduating from Hampton University in 1996 that a couple of decades later I'd be spokesman for a global coalition in, in Iraq. But here I am, and I'm happy to talk to the angry Americans, and I believe in what I do. And on the days where my morale might be a little bit lower, I just have to look around me, and I can be inspired by the most junior member of my team. I'm really, I'm really glad you, you shared all of that, but especially you do a lot of work inspiring young people. Um, every conversation I have on this show, every guest is an important, inspiring, and or iconic American. And, and you, you're a guy that has probably been below the radar for most Americans, but someone that, uh, that I know is, you know, advise senior level military leaders, senior politicians, you know, you're the kind of person that if, if whoever wins the presidency in, in, in November should be calling to work at the White House. You've been in those high level environments, but you also, you know, do talk to kids and give back on a very basic level, Miles. Um, you've been under tremendous adversity most of your life and, it de and definitely in your professional life. Uh, I asked this question of Chris Fussell last week, but for folks who are scared, for folks who, who are fear experiencing a kind of fear or anxiety that maybe they've never felt before in their life, um, what is your message to them and what can you share with them as a tested leader to help get them through it? Fear. Fear is a mind killer. And uh, whenever I might start to uh, have any sort of fear, I try to focus on what's next and put things into perspective. But I think there's a way that, that there certainly is the unknown, but there are things that are known and anticipated. And I think that there's certainly path and, to overcome fear. And a lot of that is related to preparation. Uh, I've got this little leadership philosophy that I call the straight A's for success that I talk to young people about. And also, even uh, I've spoken to some different corporations. I'll run through it, these five A's that I have, and I think it's useful. I've, I've tested it in my own life, and I, I retest it daily in a number of different ways. I think for success, these, these five A's, these straight A's for success, it starts out with having aspirations, dreams, A, aspire. Um, aspiring and, and I've seen, uh, you know, and I'm old enough where I've seen people go through transitions in, in life and eventually I'll be going through one here as I leave the military in a few years and go into private life. But having aspirations, setting goals is important because you can, you can tack something on the wall and work toward it. And as you have these dreams, as you're in New York, uh, Christopher Wallace, a famous poet from New York known as Notorious B.I.G., his first song, Juicy. It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine, right? So he even started with a dream. Yeah. Starting with a dream, next you have to acquire two things that I say. So aspire, then acquire knowledge and a network. Paul, I consider you part of my network of people. And having a network is important for achieving your dreams. Uh, but you also have to have knowledge, too. This means simple things like stay in school, but get smart on what you're trying to do. So there may be different types of learning, experiential learning that you have to have. There may be uh, learning from, from going through uh, arduous time, rigors, um, trials, all of those things. The knowledge and the network are necessary to the third A, which is achieve. Get out there and do it. Just do it. Achieve your dream. Uh, and once you've achieved your dream, you're not done yet. You have to acknowledge the people who helped you out. Your 
parents, your mentor, your clergy leaders, uh, whoever influenced you in life, you should acknowledge them. Send them a thank you note, pick up a phone, call them, text them, let them know you're doing well. And the last A of the five A's is assist, help somebody else out. What good is it if I'm here as a colonel, if I'm not helping out cadets, lieutenants, captains, majors, and lieutenant colonels become colonels? I tell the majors who are on my team, I say, my job is to train you to be a colonel. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they looked at me quizzically, but I say, just trust me. And so when we're, when we're staying up late, when we're revising things, when I'm preparing you to sit in front of the general and brief, this is all me preparing you to go beyond anything that I'll ever do in the military. And that's what I owe people. And I owe people that because people invested in me. I've got great parents and a ton of mentors uh, family and friends who have invested in me from birth all the way through this day. I think there are perhaps people in my life who could see me in this role before I could see myself in this role. Uh, so my job is to prepare others to to be in this role or whatever their dream is, in or out of the military. I love it. I love it. You also sent me a graphic that has this broken down into a video game controller that I'll post on my social media and folks can check out because I think it really effectively communicates the five A's that you're talking about. Um, but I also am, 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 uh, am recognizing the environment we're in now. And as folks who've been in the military, we've been in difficult situations before. I imagine, you know, folks saying to themselves, yeah, but you know what? Coronavirus is coming and I don't know what to do. I don't know what's going to happen. And, and you're in Iraq and you don't know when the next rocket's going to come. So what about people who, who are listening right now and said, yeah, man, that, that playbook sounds great, but this is crisis. This is this is different. All that shit about my dreams and aspirations, uh, uh, you know, this is different now because coronavirus is coming. How do you respond to that new dynamic? Hey, look for the opportunities related to coronavirus. I, 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 I spend a lot of my day monitoring social media because I live in the information environment. I'm a words warrior out here and we're in a constant information war against terrorist groups and other uh, regional actors uh, in cyberspace. So one of the things that I've seen are are a lot of the fun stuff that people are doing with uh, family at home. Uh, People are making some of their favorite recipes. I've seen folks doing these these wicked home workouts. Uh, (laughs) Some are practicing dance routines, making the best of these times. 24 hours ago, I was sitting in my office probably Uh, working on a communications plan related to shifting around some troops here. And then all of a sudden, we get an alert that there's been a rocket attack on Camp Taji again. So I'm like, what the heck is going on? Camp three times in one week? Turned out to be a false alarm. While while we're sorting out this false alarm, a couple of explosions happened in a neighborhood not too far from where I'm sitting. So that was a very real, real thing. But you roll with the punches. You control what you can control and stay focused on on living in the moment and don't worry too much about tomorrow or worry too much about what happened in the past. And I think that's a challenge that, that all of us have. Sometimes in my own life, I have the challenge of just focusing on the moment and not letting yesterday be the thief of today or tomorrow be the thief of today. Um, so that's all I would suggest. I think that's, for, really, I think that's really, really helpful. I think, I think America is adjusting to a new normal. And what I want to do on this pod, you know, for as long as necessary is try to help people hear from leaders who are maybe a little bit farther down the road and have adjusted to a different kind of new normal. 
you know, you all were operating in kind of a, a different coronavirus environment before coronavirus hit America, right? Every day, you didn't know if a rocket was going to land on your head, a bunch of your friends were going to die, and how you would have to respond to that. You didn't know if one rocket was coming or 50 rockets were coming, right? And, and some days, the entire world was focused on it, and other days, you guys were on, on the back page. So I think that that actually does translate well to this new environment where the president is saying, you know, fighting corona has got to be like a war. Many of us are mobilized in a way we've never seen before. We're going to, I think, become aware of and connected to our military probably more than any other time in modern history. You know, the National Guard is going to be involved. The Defense Department is going to be involved. The VA now is going to be involved. And that's going to be a new normal for folks. But I really appreciate your candor and your perspective, Miles, because folks are going to have to recognize that the snow day is going to be over soon, right? This is after you get to Iraq and after the first month goes by and you realize you're not going home and, you know, this is a different kind of environment, you start to adjust and your playbook, your five A's are, are applicable, you know, a month ago if you thought you were going, um, you know, to, to back to college for the semester. And they're especially important now if you have to mobilize your building or your neighborhood or your family to deal with this threat. So I really appreciate um, the durability of your message, but also the durability of, of your leadership. And I want to ask you to maybe drill down on, on one point that's important. Um, you know, the, the forever war, as I've called it, our, our continuing combat operations don't stop for coronavirus. Um, our troops are still fighting and dying uh, in many countries around the world and, and including many, many of our allies. Um, can you talk to maybe the unity that you see in your coalition and, you know, among countries of different backgrounds, different languages? I, I think that that can provide a model for what we may see from nations in fighting the coronavirus now, right? A couple weeks ago, we were all aligned. Many of us were aligned around ISIS. We can take those same coalitions and now fight ISIS. So what were the, what did you see in that um, unlikely coalition at times and what made it effective? What, what, what made that fighting force tight and, and unified in the face of such a tough challenge? Yeah, sure. I want to go back and address one thing. First, when rockets come in, I do get scared. When that alert comes off incoming incoming with the sirens my heart starts to beat when i hear the explosions i get scared adrenaline shoots up and there's nothing you can do about it but one thing over the time of uh, these deployments is i know what my mission is next and that's to inform find out the facts uh coordinate with the coalition coordinate with my iraqi or syrian democratic forces partners and get the facts out so i'm never paralyzed by the fear but certainly I do get scared in the moment, without a doubt. You talk about this coronavirus as a war. In 2014, the world responded to ISIS sweeping across Syria and Iraq. And today, nearly one third of the world's nations are part of this coalition against ISIS, a global coalition. And the core of it is here, Iraq, Syria, but they're also focused in West Africa, Asia, uh, and other regions where ISIS is a threat. The thing I've learned from this coalition is that when everybody has the same goal, and in this case, the same enemy, the, I've seen the hashtag kill the virus, when people are oriented on the same goal, they'll work together, share information more effectively, because we realize that we're all threatened by this. Um, the, it's, it's March. It's Women's History Month. A few, few uh, days ago, we had International Women's Day. 
I invite your listeners to go to the Combined Joint Task Force Operation Inherent Resolve Facebook page. Uh, Facebook page. On our Facebook page, we've been profiling uh, women warriors from throughout the coalition. You'll see them from the United Kingdom, from Poland, from the United States, nations that where people may not have a lot of interaction until they get out here. And we're bringing their stories forward because we're not robots as soldiers and we have hearts and we do miss our family and friends and, and favorite foods and drinks. Um, but it's incredible how the world will come together and rally around this enemy of ISIS and terrorism. And it's looking like the same type of response is happening as it pertains to COVID-19. One thing, though, I would say is we have to be cautious that we don't become xenophobic, that in this time of threat that we don't draw into ourselves and point a lot of fingers. Instead, this should be an opportunity for us to rally internationally and work together. I'm certain that the global health community is responding and collaborating, uh, and governmental leaders are certainly talking. And the example of what our service members do here in a place like the Coalition Against ISIS probably sets an example of the way uh, governments can interact across the world to fight the coronavirus threat. And we'll get past this, just like we are coming up on one year uh, anniversary of the, the physical defeat of ISIS territory, we'll uh, lick Corona too. Excellent. I appreciate that, man. So I, I, I've been talking to folks about how this show can adapt, improvise, and overcome. And, and we may move to a more regular show to try to provide information, especially because of our unique connection to the defense, military, and policy community. So I want to provide people with information that is useful. I think the, the last episode with Chris did that. This episode with you is going to do that as well. Um, I heard a beep. I don't know if that was on your end or mine. It was mine. Yeah, I hope it's not a rocket attack. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, you, you know that one. <laughs> All right. Um, so, uh, so let me ask you, what, what, what is it like when a rocket attack happens? What, what do you hear? How, how do you know a rocket attack is coming? I want to uh, let's, let's, let's use that as an opportunity to help people understand. Yeah, sir. The, these rocket, since October, we've, we, uh, coalition troops in Iraq have been rocketed more than 20 times at our bases. Sometimes it might be one small rocket, and when I say small rocket, it's a 107-millimeter Katusha rocket fired, and it lands a kilometer or so outside the base, and you hear a little poof in the distance. Uh, other times we've had barrages where 30 rockets have landed inside our camps and, and killed or wounded not only coalition troops, but also Iraqis. Um, so these terrorists are indiscriminate kind of like the coronavirus, you know, they'll go after anything that's that's in their target range. The We have a sense and warn system. So there we have these radars that detect things that fly through the air abnormally, and they'll go off if they identify that a rocket is coming this way, and there's an alert, a siren that goes off, a, a recorded voice that shouts, incoming, 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 incoming. You really only get moments to try to find yourself a bunker to hide in. For the most part, if you're um, if you're in your room or in your office, you'll reach and grab your body armor and helmet, say a quick prayer and hope for the best. Now, let's back up to January. January 8th, we had a tactical ballistic missile strike from Iran. 
And there was some warning that the Iranians were going to launch missiles our way. So commanders made decisions to have everyone get to body armor, move into some bunkers where they could. And then these missiles were launched. And this was kind of, you know, a night that I'll always remember as I was sitting here. I knew something might happen, but you never really believe a ballistic missile might come your way. Mm -hmm. I'm at my desk and, and a sergeant major from the 82nd Airborne comes around, bangs on my door. Colonel, Colonel, get to the basement. Like, what? So grab myself, run down to the basement and um, wait it out. And we find out that that more than 15 missiles landed near our troops in, uh, in Al-Assad base in the Anbar province of Iraq and then up in Erbil in the northern Kurdistan region of Iraq. And the first thing you do is have this great sense of empathy and concern, like, holy cow, who do I know at this base? Are they okay? Well, of course, it's hard to communicate in the moment. People are hiding in bunkers. You can't WhatsApp them. You can't Facebook message them. Uh, and they're they're looking to gain accountability. Then, then the dust settles and, and most people are okay. But it gets you focused, Paul. And you know those times when you were on the, the ground invasion into Iraq, you've written about it. When things explode, when small arms rounds snap off near you, when rocket propelled grenades uh, blow up next to your convoys, or when you know people who have been wounded or killed, it makes it very real out here. It makes it very real out here. And I can't pretend like this is just a game and that I'm only in an information war. But even with that, I know that sometimes these attacks are for the purposes of information. Sometimes what we see Russians do in northeast Syria, driving around and, and meddling with our patrols, that's part of their information. We're in what I consider to be a great powers war, not just a competition, a great powers war right now. And it's happening in the information domain. A lot of times people are moving around or even firing rockets that has a kinetic effect because it has a bigger information impact. Uh, so what I try to do is ensure that the public has the facts and the truth as fast as I can get them out. And we're doing some different things here. You mentioned at the top that I, I do some crisis communication. Yeah, a lot more than I ever expected. And what I've learned is that audiences here in Iraq and Syria, that's really my primary audience because they want to know what the heck is happening in their neighborhood. Why is the coalition here? How is the coalition working with our, our local security forces to keep us safe? But there's also a big audience in the United States. The mom of the aircraft crewman from the Minnesota National Guard. The father of the soldier from Fort Hood, Texas. Those family members, as well as our senior defense leaders and elected officials, are always yearning for information from what's happening here on the ground. And I'm very fortunate to have a team of combat camera soldiers, public affairs soldiers, as well as rank and file Joes and Janes with cell phones that snap pictures, share them up, and we can present to the world what's really going on. Um, it's quite an honor, a privilege, and a joy. And sometimes we do fun things. We can celebrate Women's History Month. We can uh, tag on to other 
trending themes and topics. And other times it's a very real business of letting you know what the heck is going on with combat operations and our continued operations against ISIS. I think you've been masterful. And I think, you know, I'm excited to see what you do when you come home, Um, whether you stay in the military and are a spokesperson at the Pentagon lectern or if you're, you know, tapped on the shoulder by the 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 president to serve as a White House press secretary or something like that. You're 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 you really are masterful in the way you communicate effectively and clearly and with confidence and 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 thoughtfulness, but also in, in many different environments. You're tweeting uh, content in Arabic. You know, you're doing press conferences with, uh, with 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 the entire region. You're doing a podcast with me in my closet. I mean, you're able to go uptown and downtown and weave in, a, you know, a Biggie Smalls reference along the way. And I think that's what we are so yearning for in this country right now, especially in this moment, is clear communication. And I will say it because I know, you know, you can't get into that world. But the president, in my view, has been very ineffective. And in the last couple of days, I think he, he's finally recognizing there are other folks that are more effective. We now see the secretary of defense we now see the secretary of veterans affairs we will see other people communicate um, but on a very basic level i want to ask you something about the coronavirus we're hearing about testing do you guys know you know have you have you gotten tests do you know if you're gonna get tests is that something you can even talk about yeah the the coronavirus back to the back to the subject of the day yeah we uh here's what we're doing to protect our soldiers from the coronavirus we're following the CDC protocols. If anyone has symptoms, we we set them aside for 14 days. They go live in a tent. We wait. We do tests. We send those tests to uh, Germany. It comes back. They're screened yes or no, and then they can move on with their military duties. Uh, certainly, while they're in their tents, they have Wi-Fi access and they're fed. But the main thing is to isolate folks and protect the force. To date, we've not had any of our soldiers in this theater, Iraq, Syria, Kuwait, test positive for corona, although corona does have a little bit of a presence in northeast Syria and in in Iraq. We live mostly on our bases. And again, our commander uh, made a decision, as well as the Iraqi commanders, to pause training. So this reduces the amount of interaction between the coalition troops, uh, over 10,000 of us, uh, 5,200 Americans, over 10,000, including all the other countries, and the Iraqi security forces, more than 240,000. And, and on the Syrian side, more than 60,000 members of the Syrian Democratic Force. So we're, we're limiting some of our interaction during this time that the training is paused. Our, as it's required, though, we do have to do our duty. So we still have people who are on the gates who, who are letting people in the post. I just told you I was meeting with the Iraqi spokesman today. Uh, we shared some great local food and so sipped on some chai tea, um, but we're looking out for each other too. So if anyone has symptoms, it's better off that they just go to their room, go seek medical aid if they can. And as soon as they're ready to get back to duty, they get back to duty. I know that um, we want to be mindful of your time because you've got you know very important work to do. Um, I also uh, was going to talk about this before we got what I thought you know was an alert um, and if you need to wrap, just let me know and I can wrap right now. Okay, no, you're good for a couple more minutes? I'm good. I'm good. I, I, hey, I'm with the angry Americans. I'd rather be with angry <laughs> Americans than angry militia mobiles. <laughs> well, we are also inspired Americans, right? We want to turn that anger into positive impact. But I also want to maintain a degree of uh, normalcy, right? I think that any of us in the military know, like in my house and and 
right now we are doing morning breakfast together. The entire family gets together and my son Ryder picks a letter of the day, a number of the day, a dinosaur of the day, a vehicle of the day and a word of the day. And as a family, we go through this process and we are exercising together. It kind of feels like being back in the military on some levels, but we're maintaining a level of normalcy. And I want to do that in this show too, but with an adjustment for the new environment. So I usually ask every guest four questions and I want to rapid fire ask them for you, of you, so we can keep that consistency in this show. So uh, let's quickly go through these, right? Number one, Miles, what is your adult beverage of choice? When you finally get home from Iraq, what, what are you looking forward to drinking? <laughs> I'm a straight-laced fuddy-duddy. I like Shirley Temples. Ah, that's the best answer ever. I love that. <laughs> We've never had anybody say Shirley Temple. Yeah, bring it. out the grenadine, buddy. I can't get it over here, and I'd be happy to kick back while anybody else has their spirit of choice. Oh, man. I, I'm remembering... Um, when we were at a party together in deep, we, you and I have had kind of Forrest Gump lives and it was, I don't know if it was an inauguration party or what it was. It was after the white house correspondence dinner. Yeah. It was 2016 like white house correspondence dinner. You and I were trying to hook up, but I think it was an MSNBC party and yes. it, it was DJed by who was the DJ. It was, uh, it was somebody big. It was like, uh, I'll think of it later. I think it might have been D nice, but it could have been yeah, Bismarcky. I just can't recall. It was, it was uh it was uh oh it was Bismarcky. It was Bismarcky. Bismarcky, yeah. yeah. Bismarcky. Bismarcky was a DJ. And I remember saying, like, hey, I gotta get my friend and he's a colonel, and they're like, ah, it's a VIP list, you know. And then I, I went to the president of the network and said, Yo, my 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 buddy is a is a is a is he is he in, in uniform. There's a bunch of liberals at MSNBC. You need to support the military better. Can you get him in? And I think they got you in, right? They got me and it was an epic night of uh, socialization there in D.C. Long way from where I am now, but I'll get back there. Well, we'll have point. more of that when we get back. Yeah. And wh when you were growing up, the next question, what was your first car, Miles? My first car, Mazda 626. I drove that, that bad boy for 13 years, 180,000 miles on it, drove it until the transmission just fried and the, the cost of getting the transmission fixed was more than a car. So I bought my next car. Uh, I drive a Hyundai now. What color was that? And where was that when you were growing up? This, well, this was, uh, this was after I was commissioned. I, it was a gray uh, V6 leather interior uh, Mazda 626. And it had the, the air conditioners things. They would oscillate. Oh yeah. I used to ride through Germany on the Autobahn hitting about 110, 120 <laughs> miles per hour. You couldn't tell me nothing when I was then, but you know what? I still recall scraping the damn bees off of my car because you, you know, when you drive through the the uh, uh, towards Kaiserslautern from where I was up in Hanau in the wine area, there's a lot of bees, and you smack the bees at a hundred miles per hour, and those things get burrowed into your paint, man. I love it. I love it. I love it. This vision of you as a young officer on the Autobahn with a Mazda 626 encased in bees, you know, drinking a Shirley Temple is going to be like, you know, the when they play you in a movie, there's going to be a scene of that. Um, uh, I had I had the I had the portable CD player plugged into the, the oh, yeah. uh, you know, ashtray lighter uh, with with Puff Daddy's uh, Bad Boys Greatest Hits. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All it's right. A victory album. A couple of the last questions we ask of everybody, and we'll do an abbreviated version. Uh, my uh, Colonel, 
Miles Caggins, Miles B. Caggins the third, which is just an amazing name to write. Every time I write it or I see it, it's just it's an amazing name. I just I have to tell you that. But um, what makes you angry and what makes you happy? What makes me angry is um, not totally related to the the military, but in general, you know, there's a lot of inequality in the world. And beyond not like, you know, not wanting to see people stepped on or put down, but thinking of the least of these, when people are, are overlooked, and in the military, it could be leaders, uh, senior sergeants and officers who never want to listen to what the young private or the young Marine has to say, that Lance Corporal, um, where they don't bring in the views of, of the youth, where they don't uh, where people look past people who may be beneath them financially. Uh, anytime people are, are overlooked, oppressed, put down, this, this bothers me. And I see it in our country. I see it over here. I see it inside great organizations like the military. Um, and that, that greatly annoys me. Uh, unnecessary bureaucracy. You know, anybody who works in a large organization, I like flat organizations. I understand rules are rules, but we got to try to cut through and have efficiencies and decide things at the table together and not have so many meetings before the meetings, before the meetings, before the meetings. Um, so that's, that's it. That's what, that's what makes me angry mostly. But I, I certainly am a hopeful, optimistic person. And I think if we look at some of the examples that we have from our great religions, the example of Jesus Christ uh, or other members of our own family. Some of us are blessed to have those great wise uncles and aunts who dispense wisdom and also dispense a wrinkled uh, $20 bill that you know they got from their social security check, but they give it to you when you're a young person, you go home and visit on the holidays and they're just proud of you and give you encouragement. That's the kind of upbringing that I had. And so I owe it back to, to my parents' parents and their parents whose dreams I'm living out. Mm. And what makes you happy, man? I get happy. I get totally geeked when I see people who I know doing well. Me and my my boys from college, we are always big up in each other. One is a, a medical professor down in Emory. Another is a, a big shot lawyer in Charlotte. Another is a great teacher. And so seeing my, my boys do well, uh, seeing people who I mentor get selected for promotion or special fellowships or schooling, Seeing the soldiers have the privilege of serving with and leading uh, have those light bulb moments where they know that the picture that they're taking is not just a frame from a camera. It has strategic geopolitical influence and they get inspired to do the best and they start bringing forth ideas to the sergeants and the officers in the section. And we adopt those ideas and, and they feel like they're part of the team and have a sense of corporate ownership. That makes me happy. Also talking to friends and family and the people who I know are interested in me for me and the people I'm interested uh, in for the genuineness, for the love. Uh, people who've been riding with me from early on, starting with my, my parents down in Columbus, Georgia, and uh, my sister and her family and some other long-term friends. Mm. Would you would you ever run for office? I hope you say yes, but well, you know we're gonna be watching you on every, when you get out of the military, have you ever thought about running for office? Paul, you know, I'm a military man, so I, I can't answer this question. No, seriously, um, 
when I was at the Kennedy School, I took a class with the professor Steve Jarding, and it was really an advanced communication class. The title of it was Making of a Politician, but it, it, it prepared me for this job in the way of knowing how to do uh, on-camera interviews, draft speeches, and other things. And he said at the beginning of the class, hey, look, folks, you're here and we need people like you in service and in government. Well, I'm already in government, but I certainly get a lot of personal satisfaction and value of, of representing others and serving. So uh, if I'm called to serve in government after being in the military, I probably would answer that call if it was what's best for for me at the time and met my priorities. But certainly the pursuit of any office, of any appointment, or any even a promotion in the military is not worth losing one's soul. It's not worth compromising one's principles and values. And so maybe that's one of the things that makes being a military spokesman unique. I just put forth the truth and state the policy and try to make it uh, inspiring. I try to persuade, but I do it with the truth. Mm. And you succeed, man, in everything you do. And that's why I've been so honored to know you. And I'm so thankful you joined us. I can't give you whiskey like I normally do in an interview. So we're going to have to adjust fire on that. I have, I will get you some kind of a, a, a special beverage. Uh, I'll try to get it to you over there. If we can do mailing soon, uh, I'll try to get you some peeps too. Cause Easter is coming. We do that. If you've listened to the show, if I were going to give you peeps and I asked you to choose between pink, blue, or yellow, which color would you choose miles, pink, blue, or yellow? I'm classic. I like yellow peeps. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Now I know what to put in your gift in your gift package, which by the way, are you guys still getting gift packages? I mean, that's one thing I saw somebody post. Interesting to know you guys are over there. Are they going to allow uh, gift packages during uh, the coronavirus outbreak? Well, it looks like our mail might be paused, but stuff is still coming in. I'm, I'm just grabbed. I've got a gift package next to me. People send them to me. They're like, hey, you're the spokesman. You know people. So when I do get a chance to travel around to some of these small camps and bring media, I've got a gift package. Here in my hand, I have a 50 little um, packages of floss. So I'll bring these to some <laughs> remote camp somewhere. Troops will have floss. Uh, everybody loves to have this gourmet coffee. Black Rifle Coffee is a popular one around here. So, yes, we do get gift packages. We also have the ability to buy things from the PX, and Amazon delivers out here when they can. Things are well. Do I get a chance to answer the dinosaur question, though? Oh, you want you want to pick a dinosaur of the day? I, I want a dinosaur of the day. Yeah, man. You you get the you're the spokesperson. You have the floor. By by all means, what, what's your dinosaur choice? I've always been a fan of Triceratops. Amazing dinosaur, right? Amazing dinosaur. Beast, offensive, defensive, Triceratops. And just such a cool helmet, and and I mean, it, it just looks cool. It's a cool looking dinosaur, right? Like, yeah, yeah we might like the, the Marshawn Lynch of dinosaurs. Oh, by the way, I don't know if you've seen it. Westworld. Have you seen the new episode of Westworld? I've seen no new. All episodes. right. Well, I, I I took a break. <laughs> and I watched the new episode of Westworld, and here's why. Number one, Jeffrey Wright, who plays Bernard, has promised to join me at this show in the future. And I'm looking forward to that. But also, Marshawn Lynch is in it. 
Marshawn Lynch. Had, is that right? Yeah, he has a featured role. I was totally surprised. Was not expecting it. I said, all right, my wife and I are going to take a break. We're going to watch Westworld to kind of disconnect, which is important in times like this. Like we learned in the army, you got to take time. You can't live in, in the fight all the time. You got to take a break and find that break. And maybe this podcast is a break for folks. But dude, Marshawn Lynch is in Westworld. And that's some mind bending yeah. shit. And it's it, it's come. You're going to see it and you're going to love it. I'll be sure to check it out. I finished uh, the final episode of Power a couple of weeks ago. And uh, out here in, in the midst of all this chaos and, and military war tension, I've got to watch This Is Us and, and get in touch with my sensitive side again ah, behind the scenes. I love it. You're touching all that. I'm hoping Milo Ventimiglia, who's been a longtime friend and supporter of IAVA and of the military, has done some USO tours. Uh, he is, is, you know, the star of that show and a guy we had on this yep. show, James Laporta, who is a, an incredible investigative reporter is a technical advisor on that show. So there's a lot of uh, connections and you, you and I keep talking, we're going to cross over into every episode we've had, but, um, I, I, I've answered questions out here about Syria from James Laporta. I used to work for ambassador Susan Rice and all my life I've had a crush on Rosie Perez. So certainly <laughs> I feel right at home on the Angry Americans podcast. That is the perfect ending, man. That, that is a great way to end it. Well, look, listen, Miles, with it, I am so grateful for your friendship. I am so inspired by your leadership. Um, you are a, a leader who's risen to the moment for this country for so long, and you're doing that especially now. You know, I was uh, on CNN during those rocket attacks. You were on one side. I was on the other side, and I felt, you know, really uh, uh, comforted and confident knowing that you and other leaders were on the ground to guide our men and women through that. And, you know, I, I know you're going to be tapped to do other things for this country in the years to come and you do it the right way. You're an incredible role model, you know, more than almost anybody I've had on this show, young people or anybody who needs a role model, read up on your background, follow you. You are a leader that this entire country is proud of. I know Hampton is proud of. I know your family is proud of. Um, but you represent the best of what this country is all about, especially in times like this. So I'm so grateful for all your leadership and for you making the time for this this discussion in the midst of everything else going on, man. Well, thanks for having me, Paul. People want to continue to get updates about what's happening here. You can follow me on Twitter at O-I-R-S-P-O-X, O-I-R Spokes. Uh, and then my personal Twitter is at Miles Caggins. And uh, I'll be happy to stay in touch with you and do any follow-up questions. And if any any of your listeners want me to Skype into their classrooms, I'm happy to make time to do that. That's actually amazing. I don't want to overwhelm you, but there's a lot of teachers who are going to be listening trying to figure out over the next couple of months how to creatively uh, connect their students with, with great educators and leaders. And you're that, man. You're, you're, you, everything you do is kind of a masterclass in, in leadership and humility and communication. So I hope some teachers take you up on that. That would be a, a great honor for the kids and an inspiration, man. But you're awesome. I look forward to having you back in the States at some point soon. We'll rent a Mazda uh, 626 and we'll get some Shirley Temples. We'll play some Biggie and Bismarcky and Puff Daddy and we will celebrate your return when we get through all this, man. Uh, all right. We're going to get through this coronavirus and, and New York streets will be full of, of travelers and revelers soon enough. All right, brother. We love you, man. Thank you for all your leadership and thank you to all the men and women that you lead over there. Yeah, that's it here from Baghdad. Have a good one. tough times, you need tough people, tough friends. 
tough solutions. And we've got it now. Sometimes you just want to simplify without having to sacrifice performance. And Bravo Sierra does that. Bravo Sierra is our new partner for Angry Americans, and I'm very excited to tell you more. They engineer highly effective, non-toxic grooming products that stand the test of the most active lifestyles. Bravo Sierra has pioneered an unprecedented large-scale testing program with 1,000 U.S. military service members and their communities. It's a simple idea. If the products work for them, they work for everybody. Plus, Bravo Sierra gives back 5% of all sales to MWR, that's Morale, Welfare, and Recreation, to support programs for active duty service members, veterans, and their families. This is an awesome part of everything they do. So you'll feel clean, look good, and smell great all day with products that are healthy, high quality, and affordable. Men's Health called them a game-changing grooming line. So check out bravosierra.com. I'm very happy to have them as our newest partner here on Angry Americans. They also just had my friend Flo Groberg, Medal of Honor recipient, all-around awesome and inspiring American. He supports Bravo Sierra. And right now you can try the Bravo Sierra starter kit for free. It's three of their best-selling products. It's an aluminum-free deodorant, the hair and body wash solid cleanser bar, and a hair grooming cream. You pay only $6.95 for the shipping for a limited time. You go to bravosierra.com and use the code ANGRY. That's Bravo Sierra code ANGRY for your free starter kit. If the ANGRY code isn't up yet, just go to Bravo Sierra and check it out. I love their products. From the moment they sent them over, I was hooked. And in particular, they've got some hygiene sets that are perfect for your go bag or for your hikes, and especially in times like this. The bar soap is awesome. It lathers up really well and doesn't leave behind any crappy residue. They have antibacterial body wipes that are particularly good post-workout or if you're going to be stuck in a place where you can't, for example, take a shower for a while. The antibacterial wipes are perfect, especially in times like this. I love the way it smells. I love the values of this company. I love the leadership, and I'm very excited to have them as a partner in the show. So go check them out. Show them some love. Check out bravosierra.com. Also makes a great pick-me-up for folks that are hunkered down somewhere. Send them some Bravo Sierra products, and it'll make them feel good, smell good. And the people who are locked up with them, they'll thank you for it as well. I love the hair and body wash and shave. It's just the best kind of body wash. It smells great, feels great, comes off easy. I love the packaging. I love the design, but the smell is awesome. It's the hair and body wash and shave solution you've been looking for. It's a great combo, and I highly recommend it. I love this product. My wife loves these products, and I think if you check them out, you'll love them too. Check out bravosierra.com and tell them that Angry Americans sent you. Everyone's concerned right now. Many folks are rallying, and there's plenty of reason to be angry. But Miles Kagan's taught you a bunch, and hopefully taught you that there is a way to get to success. I love his five A's, aspire, acquire, achieve, acknowledge, and assist. And that's a great message, because especially when the rockets are landing, especially when the virus is spreading, there's a way to make an impact. So it's time to turn that anger, sadness, frustration, inspiration, agony into positive impact. It's time to be a helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope.
If you're new here, here's the deal. I offer a way to convert your righteous, understandable anger into positive action, an action that shows that angry Americans can also be impactful Americans, an action that will channel your energy, make you feel good, and make a difference. And like this show, our actions are always packed with the four eyes: integrity, information, impact, and inspiration. Feed the hungry, house the poor, we gotta save these babies and stop the wars. Feed the hungry, house the poor, we gotta save these babies and stop the wars. Especially now, you can be a helper. We talk with Miles about a great poet of our time, Christopher Wallace, aka B.I.G. Well, this song is by another great poet of our time, Guru. Gifted Unlimited Rhymes Universal, the guy from Gangstar. The group was from Boston, but unlike Tom Brady and Donald Trump, they didn't abandon their home for Florida. You knew I couldn't let the Brady stuff go this week, right? Well, anyways, Guru was another lyricist who powerfully told stories of struggle, of the fighters, of the helpers. He says, feed the hungry and house the poor. We got to save the babies and stop the wars. Well, we got to do that now. We got to be helpers. And vulnerable seniors are at the greatest risk right now from COVID-19. And Meals on Wheels is stepping up. You remember Meals on Wheels. You heard about them over the years. Well, they've never been more critical. So check out MealsOnWheelsAmerica.org. Now, Meals on Wheels is always on the front lines, focused on doing all they can to keep older Americans safe and nourished in communities across the country. Now, the costs and efforts needed to protect seniors from COVID-19 require additional emergency funds. And that's why right now they're asking everybody to step up. You can donate at MealsOnWheelsAmerica.org. But they're also asking federal lawmakers, corporations, foundations, and the general public to remember these vulnerable seniors are critical to our national response. You can give to the Meals on Wheels COVID-19 response fund to help local communities across the country meet this increased demand for nutritious meals that can keep our seniors safe and healthy. Now, Meals on Wheels serves an incredibly vulnerable population and is often the primary lifeline, delivering so much more than just a meal, especially in tough times. Across the country, local programs are monitoring the evolving COVID-19 situation. They're taking precautions to guard these high-risk individuals and preparing for increased demand and new ways of delivering services. They're going to adapt and improvise and overcome. Now, they know the critical importance of preparation in times like this, and they understand the delicate balance between panic and preparedness. And you should check out their frequently updated national coronavirus response on their website. Now, that also requires advocacy. Advocacy is always important, but especially in times like this. And the Meals on Wheels team is fighting for supplemental funding. They're urging the administration and Congress to ensure that local senior nutrition programs are adequately resourced. It's critical that these community-based programs have access to supplemental federal funding and clear, timely emergency guidance. And the Meals on Wheels team has a statement on their website that you should definitely check out. Now, the House recently passed an updated version of H.R. 6201, the Families First Coronavirus Act, which includes a number of provisions that they've been working on in Congress to help support nutritional programs, including $250 million for programs like Meals on Wheels. This additional funding will help provide an additional 25 million meals to seniors that rely on the program. And you can call the Senate, call your representative, and tell them to support Meals on Wheels and to support this critical funding. So you can donate, you can support their advocacy, and you can also volunteer. Our seniors built this country, and now it's on all of us to save it. And that starts with taking care of our elders. They've been our helpers. They've been our greatest generation. 
They fought the Nazis. They survived concentration camps. They survived the Great Depression. And now we have to help them survive the coronavirus. And you can do that by supporting Meals on Wheels. Go to mealsonwheelsamerica.org. Plenty of ways to take action and be a helper. Do what you can. Step up. We can all do something. And now we must. Feed the hungry. How's the poor? We got to save these babies and stop the war. And if you've got a story to tell or a resource to share, find me on social media using the hashtag AngryAmericans and let me know. Don't just be angry. Be active. Stop the wars. Feed the hungry. How's the poor? We got to save these babies and stop the wars. These are tough times, important times, and I want to thank everybody out there for their continued support and their continued unity. And here's a good message from our old friend, Mr. Rogers. I'm just so proud of all of you who have grown up with us, and I know how tough it is some days to look with hope and confidence on the months and years ahead. But I would like to tell you what I often told you when you were much younger. I like you just the way you are. And what's more, I'm so grateful to you for helping the children in your life to know that you'll do everything you can to keep them safe and to help them express their feelings in ways that will bring healing in many different neighborhoods. It's such a good feeling to know that we're lifelong friends. It is a good feeling, and we are lifelong friends, and we have many friends in the Angry Americans Network to thank, a few folks that helped make this episode happen, and have been helping out each other across this community. First off, Colonel Miles B. Caggins III, an awesome individual, inspiring human being, and his entire team. Be sure to follow him on Twitter, look for him in international and national news, and watch for him to hopefully run for higher office or lead America through the future. Again, he's also single. After all this coronavirus stuff dies down, I'd love for us to all be able to come together for a Miles Kagan wedding that started thanks to the Angry Americans community. If we could get the FDNY and Chicago PD to play in a hockey game, we can definitely get Miles Kagan's married. He's a hell of a catch, people. Also, big thanks to the Righteous Media team, especially under the difficult circumstances. They continue to innovate and inspire, especially Mighty Mercy Rich. She continues to plug away and do such good, good work. Very grateful for you, Mercy. Thanks for holding it down. Big thanks to creative Chris Rosenthal. He continues to crank out amazing graphic and video content that can help you through these tough times. Go back and check out our Instagram page. Check out our Facebook page. Lots of great content there. And you can also find video. Thanks to Radical Roy Velchek. Check out angryamericans.us for video of just about every episode we've ever shot. All 50 episodes, there's video up there. And you can go to our YouTube page and find the same. If you're looking to educate some of the students, especially high school age students or college students there's some incredible conversations there you can go back and check out inventor dean Kamen and hear him talk about his wheelchair that climbs stairs you can hear from chef tom calicchio talking about food and, and his inspirational story and tough times for tom calicchio in particular right now he's definitely an important person to go back and understand and to watch and Look at people in the media like Chris Cuomo, Rachel Maddow, Megan McCain, who are helping guide the conversation. All those conversations are online, our YouTube page, and they're waiting for you and your homeschool class or whatever you need. Also, big thanks, of course, to outstanding Umar Legelege 
and to Bill Schultz, the master, who's deep in his audio bunker, cranking out this and so many other great pieces of content. My thanks to you, Bill Schultz. Also, thanks to Ari Melber and MSNBC. Uh, they had me on this week to talk about how the Department of Defense and VA can respond to the coronavirus. You can check me out in other media places in the days and weeks to come, likely from my closet with my wife's shoes behind me, but I will be continuing to do media from wherever I am and hopefully elevating some of your stories. And big thanks to Bravo Sierra, our amazing new sponsor. These guys are incredible. We're so psyched to have them in the Angry Americans family. I hope you will check them out. Go to bravosierra.com and check out their entire line of field-tested essentials, uh, stuff that's been tested by the members of the U.S. military that gives back to the U.S. military. Smells great, feels great, is great. Go check out bravosierra.com, and my thanks to them for joining the team. And my thanks to you. So it's time for Thank a Listener. Every week, I'll thank a few angry Americans for listening, especially in times like these. And I want to hear from you. You're sitting around. you got nothing to do. You're watching the clock. You're watching the windows. You're watching Netflix. We have a hotline. Give me a call. Takes a minute or two. 833-33-ANGRY. 833-33-ANGRY. Tell me what's going on in your community. Tell me how your community is responding. Tell me about a helper that's motivating you. Or tell me about an issue that's got me angry. 833-33-ANGRY. Give us a call. We'll make you famous. You can also tweet. You can post on our social media. Use the hashtag AngryAmericans. And I will make you famous. I'll make you famous. Tell me what's got you angry, and maybe we'll use it in a future show. And, of course, you can shoot me a tweet. You're probably online a ton anyway right now, so go ahead and do it. Seriously, do it. Do it. Do it. You can also tell me who you'd like to hear as a future guest on this show. We're going to keep bringing in great guests no matter what happens in America. We're going to try to find folks that can bring you the four eyes. And some great suggestions are pouring in including one from my friend 82nd 13 Fox, who's out in California. He's a father. He's a husband. He's a type one parent. Uh, he's a proud member of IAVA and many other veterans groups. And his suggestion was a great one. Hey, Paul, John Cena would be a great guest on your show. I love it. Would love to have John Cena on this show. You don't even have to come to the car club, John. We can talk to you via Skype and... You know, you're not farther away than Miles Caggins is in Iraq. So what's it, what do you say, man? Come on, let's look it up. Another great suggestion came from PM9R33N, who is in the RVA and says, losers do what is easiest, winners do whatever it takes. And this person sent a message to Andrew Yang and said, Andrew Yang, you should go on Angry Americans with Paul Rykoff. Get the message out to other Angry Americans. Hashtag UBI. I love it. Would love to get Andrew Yang on here. We were talking to his people before he dropped out of running for president. He's now on CNN. Maybe he's got some time on his hands. Andrew, we'd love to have you on the show, man. Let's make it happen. Another great suggestion came from John Bauer 08 down in Nashville, Tennessee. Big shout out to John down there and to everybody in Nashville that was hit really hard by those tornadoes. I don't want to forget about that in the midst of everything else. But he said, uh, according to his bio, you can take the boy out of South Buffalo, but you can't take South Buffalo out of the boy. He's still in the Bills Mafia rooting for the Sabres and for some reason the Red Sox. But John B. had a great suggestion. He said, Angry Americans, I have a great suggestion. Can you try and get Chef Jose Andres on Angry Americans? He is a true leader. You are right. Chef Jose Andres is amazing. This dude is everywhere. He's feeding people all over the planet. He's running into disaster zones. He is a truly inspiring individual. I would love to have him on this show. So 
Thanks to all my friends who've been listening. Thanks to those folks. And thanks for the suggestions. Hit us up. Let me know who you want to see as a guest on this show. Sound off, and we will try to make it happen. Because Corona is spreading around the world, but so is this pod. We are now up to number 79 in Great Britain. We are down a few points, number 216 in Canada. Not sure what's going on in Canada. We moved up to number 99 in Australia, number 108 in France, 132 in Sweden, and 112 in Norway. So we continue to get listeners all around the world. Thank you for all that support, but thank you all for listening, and please keep the feedback coming. grateful to all of you thanks for listening and as always thanks to my family especially right now my amazing wife and two boys who are sleeping right outside this door behind me right now but they are amazing and they have really helped us make the most of this time in isolation together so far and i know i am very lucky been thinking about doing maybe a facebook live or an instagram live with the family one day just to try to bring you all some inspiration because it's, it's fun, but it's also really hard. And I know a lot of you are having a hard time dealing with this, and I want to do whatever I can. But it's hard to explain to my son why he can't hug his friends and why the playground is closed and the all of it. But despite it, he's been amazing. And every morning as a family, we've been making a new tradition. We have breakfast together every morning, and we have dinner together. And in the morning, Ryder picks a letter of the day and a number of the day, and a dinosaur of the day, and a vehicle of the day, and a word of the day uh, is pretty amazing. And we also try to FaceTime some of the older folks in our lives, and we FaceTime Miles over in Iraq. We made cupcakes. We made slime. We watched nature shows. We watched Mr. Rogers. We did some yoga together, and we watched Wheel of Fortune. I had to explain to Ryder that Vanna White is not a tiny person in the bottom of the screen. She's actually a full-size person, but... Ryder is now into Wheel of Fortune, and he is solving the puzzles. But we're making the most of it, and there's nobody I'd rather be on lockdown with than you guys, and I love you very much, and I'm grateful for all the support you give me and this entire community. And I'm thankful to all of you who listen. My dear listeners, thank you for tuning in. Please keep pushing forward through all this. Please keep bringing the calm. Please keep bringing the positive attitudes to me and to each other. And please continue to tell your friends to check this podcast out. We're going to keep bringing the four eyes. And if you have an Apple device, please leave the show a quick review. You got time on your hands and subscribe now and we will have it hot and fresh and waiting for you every Thursday. They've been coming around midday because we've been having to adjust, but they will be there on Thursday, usually before dinner time. So check it out, subscribe, and we'll have it hot and fresh waiting for you every Thursday. And maybe more often, let us know if you'd like to hear shorter versions of this podcast on a more regular basis, because we're all going to be locked down. And if I can bring you information that matters, I'll try to do it. And definitely keep the feedback coming on social media. I see you, I hear you, and I'm with you, especially now. And go to angryamericans.us. You can sign up for our newsletter. We'll have events coming whenever events are allowed in America again, and we will adapt, improvise, and overcome until then. So stay tuned, subscribe for free, and share, and we'll keep this movement growing week by week by week. And it's okay to be angry, especially now. But stay frosty and know that you're not alone. We're all a little bit angry. That's because we're paying attention. And together, we can stay frosty. Together, we can bond in the suck. Together, we can move forward day by day and show unity in the face of adversity.
I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening, wherever you are. Stay vigilant, America, and stay frosty. Stay frosty.